Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM at Christmas. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And today I'm going to have a chat with my pal Ted Flanagan, the American author of Every Hidden Thing. We're going to talk about some of the books that impressed us this year and give you a little heads up on a couple of titles for 2024. So let's welcome Ted. Hello, Ted. Welcome back to Crime Time FM. Paul, it's always awesome to be back here, man. Love it. Love it. I, I, you know what? I thought it'd be a good idea if we did a kind of Christmas special, talk about some of the books of the year, both sides of the Atlantic. Well, let me ask you this then. Is that tradition of giving crime books for Christmas as big in the States as it is in the UK? I, as someone who loves to give and receive books, I like to think it is. I, uh, you know, it, uh, I know in my house, it was always, uh, books have always been sort of back and forth among among family members for gifts and that yeah I, I i definitely think so you know i think um if you go into any of the the chain bookstores you know my area barnes and noble is the big chain um right. we have like a books a million i wish we did but we, we don't have them in new england but barnes and noble the crime section is bursting uh and there's a lot there are a lot of them on those center displays the with the holiday theming and uh so mm-hmm. i think and i you know i was in there the other day at my local one and i think the crime and thriller section is possibly the biggest in the store in terms of a single genre. So I, yeah, my feeling is yes. Long answer. Short, no, that's yeah. good. That's no, really good to hear because um, one of the things we're getting a lot of at the moment is these Christmas crime books in the sense that they're also stories about Christmas, you know, the old country house and somebody winds up dead in the morning and then somebody <laughs> in the house has done it. But there's actually a few books this year that are subverting that kind of trend and going with a Christmas tale. That's actually incredibly dark and, you know, subversive. Uh, so there's a, there's a bit of a change going on there. I think, between the two of us, we could talk about books all day long, Absolutely. and we've got favorites, I'm sure. But just sticking to 2023 and some of the reads we've had this year. So how about you kick us off then? Give us one of your books of the year then. Well, so this was hard. I sat down when we first right. talked about doing this. I was like, 2023 was a bumper crop uh, for books, for great books. And so picking three was um well, it's always hard. Every time, you know, every time someone says, "Give me your, your top ten books of all time," I need a bunch of sub niches because uh, that, I don't can name ten. I'd have to name five hundred, right? Yeah. Um, but so this year, I think the the first one I uh, want to talk about the one that really just knocked me out in twenty twenty three uh, was "Age of Vice" by Deepti Kapoor. Right. Um, oh my gosh. It was uh, as a crime novel. It had all the things you look for in, in a great crime novel. It was an epic. Um, it, you had it followed this one young man from his birth in a rural village, and the, you know the tragic events around his family, all the way to he became uh, a hitman and sort of a body man for one of the biggest crime families in India. And then, the, but the writing too was just lush and beautiful. Uh, supposedly, I've, I've heard that this is actually meant to be the first of potentially a trilogy. Maybe I sure hope so. Um, I, I, you know, she could write a, uh, the ingredients to a shampoo bottle, and I would read it. You know, <laughs> it was literally you know we always talk about the book you can't put down and it's a doorstopper i think it comes in over well over 700 pages in the american uh version hardcover um but i i read it in maybe a day and a half i couldn't put it down like it was that book when you're off doing other things you just want to get back to the book um so it was probably one of my i can't say my favorite no no single book is my favorite book of the year but this would be if you ask me to pick three yeah this is right on that yeah I know what you mean. I mean, I don't go with that thing about the top 10 books anyway. If you ask me today, I'll give you a different 10 tomorrow. So, you know, that's the way it is. But I did read that book. And I thought one of the things about it was that it's it, there's so much in it because it takes this poor guy, as you said, you know, from Uttar Pradesh and he winds up in Delhi and 
with that crime family. And it's a kind of critique of, of Indian society. But at the same time, this is a 100% page turner, even though it's as long as you say it is. You know, this book just, it's riveting reading, isn't it? I just even thinking about it right now brings back, um, you know, I don't tend to get emotional about books. I love them. The, the, the spice of life, the thing other than family and my dog, they're the thing I appreciate most in the world. Right. Of books. <laughs> um, but this one really just the way she writes about um, human relations. Like she even, you know, the way she was able to humanize this, uh, the, the Sean of a, the sign of this awful crime family, you sort of liking him and sort of rooting for him, despite all these things he did, which I guess, you know, that's, that's a great use of a of a uh, an antihero. Um, yeah, a, a textbook case of how to do a great you know do a great job. That, that's that. a really good thing, that because I mean we've talked before actually around your book and the idea that there are no good people and bad people. You know, right. there are real people if your book yep. works. And so you know everybody's a hero in their own life. And it's it's interesting to writers who can get that sense of compassion around a character and an understanding of a character, even though you don't agree with what a character does. Agreed. Yeah, you know, I love it. I, 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 every time someone asks me for a book recommendation, this is usually one of my first ones that that comes out. It's just, it was great. You know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to number two. Okay, well, that's a really good start. Anyway, let's talk about your book just for a minute, because um, your book came out. Your book was out in the U.S. anyway, but it came out in the U.K. in July this year, and that's it, every hidden thing. Came out yes. with no exit press. And um, what? Let's start by telling us a little bit about the book. So it's um it's sort of a multi uh, character uh, noirish story about a, a paramedic who discovers uh, a night shift paramedic in the city of Worcester, Mass, who discovers some secrets about the city's mayor, who is who has aspirations to both the governorship and and beyond. Uh, and the, the, this uh, mayor has hired a former police officer, a disgraced former police officer, to clean up a lot of his messes. And this paramedic becomes one of the messes he has to clean up. Right. And so the book and the book follows how um, a newspaper reporter who's been you know laid off, told she's no longer going to have a job, but she gets a significant amount of money from this bag man to sort of aid and assist in uh, taking taking care of this one sort of, you know, nagging secret that needs to be taken care of. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of uh, impetuses behind writing the book. I'm always fascinated by um, by power and by the 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 way power can be wielded for good or evil. And I think um, I, when I wrote the book, I felt like I was, maybe I was pushing the boundaries a little bit on what someone would do with their power. Yet I think right. two years realized I didn't go far enough. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, no, no. That, that's reality. the truth. Yeah. You know, you, you can see that these people, there, there is no limit once they start, you know, that's interesting though, because it's a way of saying sort of like um, it's Worcester in a sense in the novel which is your hometown, your home city. But at the same time, it's not. I mean, you talked the last time we spoke, actually, about um, Hel um, Hubert Selby Jr. Yeah, that wonderful quote, yeah. Yeah, well, you did. He wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn, and, and uh, Michael Silverblatt, the critic, born and raised in Brooklyn, said to Selby, I don't recognize this Brooklyn. Where where in Brooklyn is this? And he said he was writing a Brooklyn of the soul. Mm. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, it was it was placed in Brooklyn, but really he was writing about a, a, a uh, larger principle of humanity. Yeah. And I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think anybody from Worcester, in fact, there's, if locally, if there's been some criticism, it's like, you know, you got the wrong name for the fish and chip shop. Well, yes, I, <laughs> you know, and there's bits of other cities that are, you know, I, you know, my, the character of the book isn't me, uh, but I'm, I mean, I've been a paramedic for 25 years now. And, um, 
by the way, if you're a writer and you're looking for a day job to uh, inspire your writing, become a paramedic, you will meet everybody from every walk of life. And all the veneer and the things we hide our true self behind are gone. And people will tell you things in five seconds that they wouldn't tell their priest. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that it does. It, it becomes like a priest. And, we, you know, a police officer can go anywhere because police officers work with crimes with rich people and poor people. But you see that society day to day. And at the end of it, you know, lots yeah. of money, no money. We're all the same, you know, under the skin, really, isn't it? You know, fascinating me, I worked in a for a paramedic in this service. We were based in possibly one of the poorest cities, certainly the poorest in Massachusetts, maybe one of the poorest in the East Coast or even the country. Super poor. But we also serviced some of the ultra rich communities that surround mm. uh, and I will never forget this feeling of you would go to this one community. It's very rich. I mean, like hedge fund managers live right. here, right? And um, you go to these houses, multi-million dollar houses, but you go inside and half the rooms are empty. Mm. And you realize how many people are living lives. It was there's one presentation to the world, but the reality is uh, they're not. They're more, they're closer to the folks that have nothing in the other city. Than, in it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a great job for that. Um, but yeah, so the, the book has pieces of a bunch of different cities where I worked and including Worcester. And so it's yeah, it's, like you said, it's not Worcester per se, but it's it's there's a lot of Worcester Worcester of my novel, there's a lot of those around. Who are some of those noir influences then, you know, on, on your writing? Well, I think uh we share we have a shared love with Ted Lewis. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, GBH and the Carter and all like uh you know, said Ted Lewis for sure, James Elroy. Yeah. Um you know, if I had to pick my favorite living writers, I mean, obviously, James Elroy and uh, David Peace are right at the top of that list. David Peace is 1974, uh, which I understand, you know, he doesn't particularly um, love as he's evolved. He's he's mm. changed a bunch of things. He always feels like he likes to write from a true crime basis um, and focus on victims. And he feels like you hear him in interviews suggest that he didn't really focus on that in 1974 was pure fiction and. But um, just even the first chapter of that book with a, just a reporter at a press conference, which I've, I've done as a reporter, and um, he just grabs you from that first second. And that world he creates um, I just really stuck with me. And obviously, you know, Dashiell Hammett and Ross McDonald and, you know, Charles Williford, all the all the great sort of uh, dirty realist uh, crime writers um, have been huge influences on me, mostly, mostly yeah. for the voice. And, and Elmore Leonard, for sure, is another one uh, where you just see writers working entirely inhabited by their own, by their writing voice. They're not, there's no affectation, you know, Jim Thompson. That's um, I, the voice is what stands out to me mm. the most, uh, for those folks. But. Yeah. You were saying to me that it's when you get the voice that you get the novel, that you start, you know, your writing really takes off then. Yeah. Yeah. The last, the, my current work in progress. I, um, when I, once I found the voice, I think, I, I think I told you earlier, I did it over a hundred pages in about 20 days. And uh, it's, that's a lot of writing. It, it, but it felt effortless, mm. you know. And this other novel, a, a long-term project I'm working on, it's quieter. It's a it's a harder voice to acquire, and um, you know, 20 pages would take me a year. And so right. it's nice when I found the voice in this one, and I connected with it, and the story just came out. And so um, that that's a wonderful feeling. I'll be honest with you. Like it's when thing when you just sit down at the keyboard, and then six hours goes by before you know it. Uh, there's no better feeling. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, what go about, on. What's something uh, from England? What about uh, or the UK okay. or Europe? Well, I'm not. It's not going to be an English novel, actually, to start with. I'm thinking of one. It's called um, "The Sins of Our Father" by um, a Swedish author called Orsa Larsson. 
and it was translated by Frank Perry. Um, this this one is the last in a Rebecca Martinson series. So there are seven novels, and it, what's happened here is that those are six thrillers, and this is like an epic saga to end it, and it's a literary novel. So you've got a basically a body turns up in a freezer in the modern world. And it goes back to 1962. And then you get the saga of all these characters coming forward. What I find with the novel is that the characters are all beautifully developed. You know, these are mature people with mature relationships. So it's not a kind of buddy cop thing as much as it feels like real relationships between real people in an office, you know, and the characters are brilliant. And there's another aspect to the book, which is this social aspect um, that we've been talking about. And I think it's going to be a theme in all the books we're talking about, you know. But it's that thing about, um, it's based on a town called Corinna. And Corinna is literally falling into a mine pit. And so they're moving the town. But there's a lot of wealth up that part of northern uh, Sweden. And so what's happening is, you know, everybody's moving in to try and get a, some of their resources. And as soon as that happens, crime follows and it goes on and on. And so, you know, there's that social aspect to it. But the essence of it is it's just a beautifully written book. That sounds amazing. I mean, so I was talking, you know, John Vircher, our mutual yeah. friend, and we were both talking the other day about um, our love of epics in the sense that 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 long journey that a book can take you on, uh, you know, like uh, the one that stands out to me is Overstory by Richard Powers, which is right. hundreds of years told through the story of trees. And they're, you know, I, that sounds awesome. Um, do you think it was that? going to be published um only in europe at this point or do you think that would be something to come overseas i tell you what i'll check it out and i'll put it in the program notes because uh, i'm not sure about that um yeah. but uh, honestly i think this book was you know this would be my book in translation of the year i think really um how much do you think of the so the beautiful writing i'm i'm fascinated by translations um because I, I feel like we undervalue the art of the translator right because how hard is it for frank perry to catch this writer's voice but obviously he he must have he must have done it it's, it's affected you um you know I, I i wonder how much of that is um the translator backing up backing out of it or or how much does that bring their own sensibility to to the written word and so yeah it's a, that's a really good point you know i think you'd have to appreciate it's a collaborative exercise right so it's you know it's it's a bit of both but they talk a lot and got a sense of, of what was going on in Swedish, you know, and how that could translate into English, because it's not, there's nothing, you can't do it literally. I mean, that doesn't work at all. It's, it's getting the essence that's there in the original and translating it. I think one of the things that worked for me with this book was, and I've spoken to the translator, he basically said that when he read it, he loved it. And so, you know, he had a, a real desire to make it the best book he could make it when he was translating it as well. And it, I think that comes across, you know? Well, that's right. I, it's amazing. Well, I, I was a Murakami who writes in English, translates right. it back to Japanese, and then someone translates that into English. Um, yeah, it's it's an art form. I think more and more translators are are being recognized for their importance, or, or people are starting to seek out translations by certain translators. Um, yeah, so we certainly have a few here who are really good translators. You know, you're in safe hands with certain people. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Awesome. Um, so, what about your next choice? So I'm going to go with a personal favorite. I, um, I love everything this guy has written. Um, he, uh, he's written the final installment. I'm, I'm, I'm both thrilled to read the book and sad that this character has ended. All oh, these books are ended, but Todd Goldberg, uh, Gangsters Don't Die. 
Um, he, but his whole, the whole gangster series of his, of just, he's just, he, he's from the very first word, he's got you. And he doesn't stop until the end. And then he even, even his short story collection, The Low Desert, probably the best collection I read in 2021, maybe mm. in the last five years. Um, and I just, you know, you, you have, I don't know if you've had a chance to interview Todd. Um, no, I haven't interviewed him. I read those, I haven't read this one, by the way. But I did read the first two books in the series. I mean, tell the people the premise for a start, because the whole setup is brilliant. I mean, yeah, yeah. So Todd himself, if you read his bio, he comes from this really interesting. His mother was a, a sort of a gossip magazine mm. uh, writer who had lots of uh, relationships with really interesting people um, and some mob figures and whatnot. And so Todd himself has a really fascinating background. And he created this character, Sal Cupertine, who was a uh, a hitman for the Chicago mob family, um, who uh, his father was executed in front of him by being thrown out of uh, the IBM building under construction. And Sal runs afoul of his uh, of his family as an adult, as a hitman, and flees, um, or is actually sort of uh, squired out by uh, cooperative forces where he gets a bunch of plastic surgery and takes on the identity of the Rabbi David Kushner. At a fancy uh, synagogue in a beautiful section of, uh, I believe, it's outside of uh, the real, the real place he's writing about is right outside of Las Vegas, I believe. Mm. And then uh, it, the books generally evolve how you know close brushes with discovery or things. You know, he still maintains he uses the cemetery, the synagogue to bury bodies, and um, but yet it, it sounds awful. But you really like the guy. No, I really think the idea is just incredible. Is it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, I mean, it's it's genius. It's absolute genius, and. Um, it's funny, the the main thing I really like, and because I have to keep stopping myself and be like, no, this guy's a hitman, but he kind of becomes a yeah. functioning, really excellent rabbi. Like he becomes a real shepherd for his flock and mm. and it's just from studying, you know, because he knows he has to plausibly play off as as a rabbi, he the character becomes one. So he's this duality where he's this evil hitman, but he's also this really amazing um rabbi pastor type uh counselor to his to his congregation and um yeah i won't spoil it but it's uh it's a very satisfying uh payoff um todd's todd goldberg i think um you know this is class of guys that write really great novels that are also mm. really meant to be filmed i think a lou bernie he's another right. guy who's a screenwriter by trade right Dwayne. Uh, i always pronounce Dwayne's wrong name wrong Dwayne swarchinski he's finally publishing right. uh california bears new novels come like these guys write books um or david benioff the mm. runner for the game of thrones wrote this great book i just had just got it too on uh, the 25th hour uh essentially about a mobster who's going to report to jail in 24 hours and what he does in his right. last day but they're great writers and they're but their work is so clearly translatable to film and other medium i wonder if that's sort of also the the key to success is you still write great literature but with an eye toward what else can be done with this mm. is um, but Todd Goldberg's work is just it's accessible, it's great. Uh, I think we'll still it'll still be popular in 20 years. Um, I think he's it's here to stay, you know. Yeah, no, I could see that. I mean, I, I was lucky, I think it's one of those things that sometimes you get a book and it strikes you so much. I didn't know Todd Goldberg when I picked up two of his books. Yeah, me either. Lucky, just found them and I thought, you know, I like the sound of that. And afterwards I'm thinking that was a real smart decision getting those books, you know. Yeah. He's um his brother, interestingly enough, Lee Goldberg, is also a writer of uh, crime fiction. I think if you if you just ran the numbers, probably more 
successful, whatever that means. Yeah. Like, uh, well, he's, he's written for television and written his own shows and written with Janet Ivanovich. And uh, yeah. And also he's a publisher too. I mean, he's got a publisher called a uh, publishing house called Brash Books. Right. Who publishes and, a lot of great stuff themselves. Yeah. Really Apple. interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I have a slight connection to Brash. My, my godmother remarried uh, the novelist Mark Smith, who was a National Book Award nominee in 1974 for uh, right uh, death of a. I think the name of the film. My gosh, she'll kill me. But anyway, he, Brash republished, reissued his books. Um, so that's one of those. I like Brash and um, uh, Stark House Press. Uh, yeah, a lot of small publishers that will bring back books that you know sort of have disappeared over time. Yeah, know? I agree with you because I think one of the things about pulps as well is that there's. I think pulps were the first ones to get in on some stories, you know, before they got into literature, what we yeah. call literary novels and that, you know, there's stories that come out in the pulps going back to the 1930s. And you think we weren't talking seriously about these things for decades later, but they were there in the pulps originally. And it's that kind of stuff that they're bringing back, which is brilliant. Well, I, I remember my, my favorite quote that I, that inspires me about is for a Nelson Algren quote. He said that, and I forget, I'm going to paraphrase, I'm going to butcher it, but Oh, here we go. Sorry. A certain ruthlessness, and sense of alienation from society is as essential to writing as it is to armed robbery. You know, <laughs> what a yeah. brilliant quote. <laughs> it's a great quote. And, and the pulp writers knew that, like they were angry and they didn't have anything to lose. And, and I understand, you know, they, they got paid by the word, which is the greatest way to get paid. Um, yeah. But the, they were just brave is how I think of them. They would write about things that might've got them ostracized, might've got them. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of those writers today are, are ones writing about, you know, um, some other social issues where they, mm. they risk, you know, the, um, like David Peace always says, you know, the crime, crime novel is the great sociological novel of, of our era. And they say, they say dangerous things. Uh, yeah, no, and I, I absolutely firmly believe that. Okay. That takes me on to my next choice, which is kind of interesting one. It's an author who was a top policeman in a place called Brighton in England, um, Graham Bartlett, and it's Force of Hate. And the intro, I'm always kind of wary when I read ex-cop novels, right, especially right. British ones, because they tend to be kind to policemen. But I think we're the worst of all in being benevolent to our police force. I don't think it's quite so in America. It's absolutely not true in places like France and Italy, where they have the complete contempt for the police force. Sort of yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, you know, for us, it's a thing where you can have a bent copper, but you don't sort of have a bent system. And I think one of the things about this is he's writing a book and uh, it's, the council's been taken over by a right-wing group. You know, that hasn't happened in real life. But those things are much more worrying and much closer to the truth these days. Yeah. And so it's a kind of like, well, how do you do coppering in the background like that when they want you to do certain things? I mean, they're more interested in getting rid of gypsy communities than they are in, in, in you know, dealing with crime or anything. So it's a fascinating book from that point of view. And it's a rare thing. It's rare, but I think it's getting bigger and better now is this idea that British novels can be as concerned by institutional problems with the police force as well as just, you know, the idea of a, a dodgy cop, if you like. Well, it's funny. You know, I, I've always thought of British crime fiction as uh, sort of on the vanguard of a lot of things like they're, you know, a lot of the um, not, you know, crime novels in America in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. I mean, oh, a great debt to to writers like Ted Lewis and you know, mm. That um, yeah, American uh, dealing with police and fiction. There, this is just me think speaking. I don't have an agenda, but like no, sure, and I don't speak for the. They're either theory. side, right? Yeah, I think American crime fiction. The cops are either saints 
and you can there's a certain kind of writer that uh that writes about uh law enforcement and uh, the federal you know federal law enforcement and military stuff like super pro never question um and then the other side i think uh the the crime fiction i like is it just police are just and i know a lot of police officers i know some it, it you know i see the problems with policing in america but i know lots of great cops like they're great people they don't go mm. they don't put on the uniform every day and go out with plans to you know impede on anybody's rights but the system sort of encourages that in a way yeah you know? see that's what i'm interested in. and i agree with you actually i should make that clear i don't think coppers are bad people or anything but i think there's a kind of wearing down process that when you join the police force there are certain things that you become attitudes and, and mentalities around things that you develop that you wouldn't have done when you went in there no. but they kind of creep up and i don't think we you know as a society we should be cleverer about spotting these things and working out ways of dealing with it but uh but no, I, yes, oh, sure. I don't think coppers are bad per se, but it, it's interesting. I mean, there's another novel, um, Burn Smith's Scratching the Flint, which is a Canadian novel set in Toronto about 20 years ago. And that one deals with police corruption there. And it, it really digs in and really gets to the heart of what was going on at the time, the racism, the corruption, you know, the, the links between the cops and the gangsters at a certain level, you know, that was basically dominating the community. We've got a scandal going on in America right now in Los Angeles where the, the, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, it's not just that they have gangs of police officers. They have mm. gang, gangs in the police department competing with each other. Right. Uh, which is absolutely horrifying to me, you know, because police yeah, have the power of life and death. They can lock you. Like, you know, power, power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think mm. that's the problem. Yeah, the um, it's the power structure and then. You know, it, it doesn't take much. You only need one person to uh, to take a less than uh, stellar view of power and, and to abuse it. And, yeah, I think I mean, it's it's not there's nothing new. Human beings, you know, I, I've been reading a lot of the philosopher John Gray lately. You know, he's that famous. Oh, yeah. uh, and I approached his first book, uh, Straw Dogs, um, mm-hmm. with this skeptical eye about, you know, I'd heard about what he thinks about human nature. But then I came away from being like, he makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Like, Humans, when left to their own devices, can be sort of um, cruel and awful to one another. And uh, yeah, I think police are like other any other person; they're susceptible as susceptible to anybody. Um, you know, to, you never know what someone will do when they feel like they're not being watched, and there's this opportunity for advancement, you know, monetary gain, revenge on enemies, um, that sort of thing. Like you never know what people will do if they think they're not being watched. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But go back to your novel then a little bit, because um, one of the things about the novel is it's a it's a it's a crime story, but it's not a traditional crime story. It's not a murder mystery, solve the murder type of thing in a way. Um, But part of the novel is also about change and about the community and how, you know, the industrial decline, the newspapers, all that sort of thing. I mean, so in a sense, what I'm asking is, were you kind of telling the story of that kind of town in America, if you like, that kind of city? Oh, absolutely. And I'm fascinated by Worcester itself, right? So Worcester was formed in the uh, late, you know, uh, 18th century. We basically, settlers came out of Boston um, and pushed off the Native Americans that were already living here and they formed this community. And then in the 19th century, um, a lot of, you know, the the city saw one of the biggest influxes of of Irish immigrants fleeing 
the potato famine and other things. My yeah. my father's family, both his mother's and father's side, both came around the same time to America. Uh, one was to help. The, one family came to help dig the canals. We had a canal that went from Worcester to the sea. They call um, that the Blackstone Canal, which eventually was buried under and forgotten about. And then uh, the other fam- side of the family came to train racehorses, which I didn't realize was a uh, right. So, and so the Irish came to Worcester, and they take over. First, they start off as they were d- just reviled in the city, and then they eventually took over all the civil service jobs and rose to become. They were, by the time you know the 1950s, uh, Irish ran the city, absolutely mm-hmm. ran. During my childhood, you know, the 70s and 80s, um, you saw a lot of people coming up from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And there was this clash because the Irish had gone from being the, the underdogs. Yeah, and the, right. Uh, these folks came in, there was that clash. And then, you know, by the 90s, like really uh, the the major force in Worcester has really been uh, this influx of folks from uh, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And they bring a great energy to the city and rebirth. They revitalize a lot of stuff. And then and now in the last uh decade or so we see a lot of folks coming from uh west africa um and other other places and they're they're bringing a vibrancy new restaurants and shops and stuff but they're butting heads with the yeah right it's this constant regeneration of rising and falling rising and falling and then eventually you find an equilibrium i think mm. um yeah the, the city was uh an industrial city we made we made the barbed wire that closed off the american frontier right uh which i i find huge symbology behind that like it was uh it's like to me it just speaks like it's the end of potential in a way like we mm-hmm. have this vast unopened uh open land to the west coast and we have people were on that land and we pushed them out we don't talk about them right um but then we we shut it off and now we're all fighting over the same we're all penned in yeah. this map and worcester provided the pen you know which somehow said worcester's always been known as sort of uh insular and uh providential and which i love about it we, we said it with pride you know you're, you're wista you know, but um there's also something great that on a national scale we were part of this sort of closing off of of uh this this vast wilderness um and i don't know what the symbol is but it, it's definitely i see a connection and i'm not surprised that that was our big contribution right and uh, so, but right. they reinvent themselves all the time. You know, now they're uh, the city's becoming a, a a hub for biotechnology and healthcare, and um, the city's better now than I've ever seen it. But also, the thing, the things, the troubles the city had, they're still there. If anything, they're more intense. Mm-hmm. But now they're sort of uh, ghettoized in certain sections, and so it's bright and shiny over here. But over here, there's still the people that don't have access to healthcare. They don't have access to jobs. There's rampant drugs and, and violence, but, you know, it's in pockets now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's always a little horrifying, but it comes out of the pockets. People don't realize it, it's the same city. It's just yeah. involved. I know what you mean, though. I think this is the love of, of a place that, that comes out in good crime fiction because you're not, you know, you're not afraid to talk about those bad things. But you're also not blind to the fact that change is natural, you know, and the place is growing and changing every day of the week anyway. Change is good, I think. I, I, you know, these these folks that are moving to to Worcester from all over the world, they bring energy. You know, the city. When I was a kid, Worcester was you didn't want to go to Worcester. It was not, there was nothing there. Mm. All the buildings had closed downtown. The Denholm, the famous department store, had closed down. Like people would come from all over to see their Christmas display. That was gone. Um, you know, they it was a time where a lot of the folks that were immigrating from from uh, the Caribbean area were put in this one project. 
uh, that was uh, had no public transportation. It was miles and miles from centers of employment and stuff. And they wonder why there ended up being this massive riot there. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, right. Those days are gone now. It's it's. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say it's it's a lot of perfection, but it's a thousand times better than it was in. Yeah, you know, Worcester is um, Jack O'Connell. Really, I can't claim to be the first writer to take on Worcester, um, but it might be the second. You know, Jack O'Connell wrote some great novels, Wireless, uh, Box Nine, and he fictionalized. He, he named the city after the big lake in Worcester. But it's clearly Worcester, mm-hmm. and you know, he was already grappling with this stuff in the '90s and early 2000s. And um, one of the actually for me, one of the um, the best parts of the whole book experience was giving Jack a signed copy of my book and letting him know. Right. Yeah. 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 What an influence he was on me. That was pretty great. He still lives in the city. And, um, there's definitely room for two writers in Worcester. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, I can't believe no one has written about it. Um, prior to us, like uh, it's E.L. Doctorow placed, uh, the first scene of the book of Job, um, in Worcester mm. quick in and out. Um, so yeah, so much has gone on. The city is so full of, incredible stories uh that are just you know everybody's written about boston everybody's written about new york city um uh, but i look at like the southern writers in america you know that are uh yeah some of the books are starting to sound a lot alike but a lot of these great southern writers um the thing they all have in common is they they don't shy away from writing about their hometown where they're from yeah Miley cash personal mentor of mine a guy i love um you know, his books are all centered on places where he's lived and knows and and um, I think there's, even though, yeah, every city in America is becoming homogenized. I don't know if the UK has this problem. We all the same. You know what? Well, we're yeah. getting, I think it's two things are happening. One is like, I mean, I suppose in America, there was almost like a, a crime was LA, and New York in a sense for one period. But now I see writing from America that comes from everywhere. It comes from Kentucky and Southern Carolina, and it comes from Minnesota. And it's so it's all over the place. And it's all about those. It does illustrate the difference between those places. And I think we're getting some regional, we're getting more regional. We've always had a little bit, but we're getting more regional detective stories. You know, it started with Ted Lewis, really. You know, there were a couple of stories before then, but then when Ted Lewis did it and said, you know, hell, I'm setting my book in Hull. Of all places, you know, I'm not, it's not London, you know. It's not going to be a big city. It's going to be Hull. And so there's a very distinct character behind that. Of course, that was the place he grew up. And you get a real feel for a place from people. I think it helps if people go away and come back. Because then you get some perspective. Right. So, you know, like in your case, okay, you go away, you be a Marine, you do something else somewhere else, you know. But And then you get a slightly different perspective on the place you live because you haven't been there the whole time. And I, I think it's, it's it's really interesting, the kind of fiction we're getting now, crime fiction, because of that. I think um, there's some introspection that, that's going on, too. And, yeah. I, and it's a pandemic. I hate to say the word and bring it up and everything relates to the pandemic. But the reality is we had a lot of time to think about mm-hmm. where because all of a sudden you couldn't go the five miles to that place and you sort of wanted to. And I think so people are, um, are going to be, I, th- I think you're going to find a lot more, hopefully a lot more regional crime fiction. That's also introspective about the place, not just these people walking through it. You know, like the, the setting is no longer just window dressing for the action. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, yeah. So much. It, it is. I know it sounds kind of cliched now that we say, it, but it is the, a character in the novel. I love but, when people but, tell me that. Yeah, I, yeah. I do. I do because it's true. You know. I think. I think it's, what it is is that it's a character in the sense that the place defines the character of the people. Right. You know that that it does change them because of the way it is, and that's how it's a character in the novel. You know, so it's a real thing. It's not. It's 
not just yeah. the, you know, the showing you the landscape and that kind of thing. What about your third choice then, Ted? My third choice, I had to do it. Um, you know, my favorite living writer gave me uh, gave me a blurb for my novel um, that if the novel had never been published, that blurb would have made it all worthwhile. Uh, the Enchanters, right. James Elroy, the latest. Um, yeah. I'll be honest with you. Um, I've loved every book he's written, except the one before The Enchanters. I'm going to be honest here, and this may get me kicked out of the James Elroy uh, universe. I, uh, the widespread panic. He used this mm-hmm. device. Were lots of rhyming, and it's okay. He did. He wrote in couplets, and it was it was aggravating because it was every paragraph all the way through the book. Mm. And I'm sure he was trying to achieve something. But it, so I was a little worried when the Enchanters came out. I was not. I was hoping for more per- perfidia and less. Um, uh, yeah, right. And uh, it's it's awesome. It, it's uh, Freddie Otash, um, the main character of the book, uh, a real guy that Elroy knew. Um, this book is fantastic. Anybody that's a fan of, of Elroy needs to, to go out and, and read this book. I know it just came out. Um, so it sort of squeaked into my 2023 list, but yeah, I love right. it. Right. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I was um, kind of, when I started reading Elroy, he takes a while to get into. Mm-hmm. It's quite, you know, there's a, you've got to get the rhythm of Elroy. And, it, yep. you know, once you've got that, you're okay. But, uh, but he's, I mean, he's a, such a distinctive writer. I and actually I, think his beginnings, his openings, you would think for a guy that writes such clipped, powerful, mm. or I actually have a hard time getting through those first few pages when mm. you're just in the middle. Yeah, of no, something. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like. You, uh, you've really got to get it and get the rhythm and then you can go. When he gets yeah. you though. Oh yeah, for sure. I still think like American Tabloids probably one of my favorite. Again, be on my top 10 list if I could possibly. Yeah. Um, and this book does not disappoint. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's a late addition to my list, but that is my number three for sure. Okay. I'm going to take one now. It's a Nigerian book called Gaslight by an author called Feme Coyote. And, um, it's about a, a minister whose wife goes missing and he gets arrested. Is he being framed? Did he do it? But it, what's really fascinating about this guy is he's interested in the psychology of mass movement. So the first novel, for instance, was called uh, The Light Seekers. And it was about, a, it wasn't based, it was based on, it wasn't about the specific incident, but there was a, some students and they were accused of robbery and they were torched to death. Yeah. So, so it's talking serious, it was, you know, necklacing. It was a really horrendous crime. And so his point was, I want to find out why people do something like that. How can we get a group mentality where that kind of thing occurs? And I suppose the group mentality in this one is religion and the mass psychology of religion. And what he's doing is we're only two books into this series, but I think over a period of time, he's going to lay out a kind of picture of Nigeria so that if you don't know Nigeria, you're going to be able to read these books, good and bad. You know, it's not all about the bad side, but read these books and get a whole sense of the place and the people and what the country is actually like. And I, I find that scope fascinating, really fascinating. Put those in the show notes for sure. I definitely want that. Sounds incredible, right? We'll that, do. Does he write in English or does he? Is he? Is yeah, he no, no, he's English, English writing. Yeah, um, and it very well written too. You know, beautifully written, so uh, easy to read. Have you got any books then that that maybe didn't make that top three, but ones you want to mention? Because as you said, you know, we're so so many books in a year. 
Uh, so, um, uh, Mick Heron's latest, which the name escapes me. I love Mick Heron because he Secret Hours. Secret, yeah, the, yeah, the, the one that just came out a couple months ago. I, I have it somewhere in my office here, but um, he just uh, I love Mick Heron. I mean, don't make any bones about that. He's he just there's that sort of uh, comic element to it. Um, his character depictions are just he can nail somebody in two sentences, mm. you know. Um, Jackson uh, from the the Slow Horses series, um, the one played by Gary Oldman in the series. Yeah, uh, uh, Jackson Lamb. What a character! I mean, and I love I love the series, um, but the books are just ten times better because it can really go into you, you mm. realize. I understand it's difficult in a visual medium to display inside thoughts, but um, I would say that uh, you know McCarran probably does it better than anybody right now. And I'm kind of gl- I'm not kind of very glad. You know, I read him back in the Soho days when uh, he was sort of even the slow horses stuff wasn't super well known. So I'm thrilled that he's finally getting his due because that's a guy he's just surprised. Yeah. You know, he's one of those writers who, who everybody comes up to him and says, you know, hey, you got instant fame. And he says, yeah, I got instant fame after 20 years of writing books. You know, suddenly right. you know this, you know? <laughs> I love the story that the 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 book, you know, his breakthrough book, um, Soul Horses was he was at a bus stop and he saw a black door in a building on his commute to work. Mm. Every morning. And he conjured this idea that it's a, the semi six uh, folks th- that have been exiled from, uh, from the main headquarters and they work in this slaughterhouse and this, it's that black door. And in reality, it was just to some flats upstairs, but yeah, yeah. Nothing serious. Conjured yeah. From this one black door, this huge world that um, that's obviously working out pretty well for him at this case. How about you? Well, I want to say a word for, for Jordan Harper's, um, Everybody knows uh, this is a remarkable book. I tell you what, actually, if people want to know what Jordan Harper's writing is like, there's a the latest um, Southwest Review. Noir edition. Yeah. Yep. Noir edition. And his story is in there. Well, let me check that out. What story was it? It's um, My Savage Year. That's the story. And boy, that's powerful. And that would give you some sense of people. It's free online. You know, it's there. It's if you check Jordan Harper out, you can see that online and you can read that story. And it's a phenomenal story. But basically, I think he's going to be a big deal pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, Ride Shotgun was great. And then this new one I haven't read yet, but I've heard. Uh, It's a remarkable book. I think he is getting stronger and better. I think what he's illustrating as well is, you know, that it's possible to do right indie but actually cross over into the main market. You know, if you give people a chance to see it, people will buy this stuff. Because they do care about that kind of book. And it's set in Hollywood. And the thing is, um, there's a woman who's um, a black bag publicist, which means that her job is to look after, hide, cover up the stories that they don't want out there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, But she's forced into a, a lot of trouble when her boss is killed. And that brings her up against the power and the corruption and the money in Hollywood and the money men behind that, you know. And you see this, this whole, it's like, I suppose what it is, is it's the flip side of the American dream. This is the American nightmare. Right, and right. It, and where, where better to do it than Hollywood? You know, this, yeah. and for that reason, it, it's just such a powerful story. It really is very interesting. Oh, I, yeah, it's definitely on my list for sure. He, yeah, he's, I, I mean, I'd be really excited to see what, what happens to him in the next five, 10 years. I think, you know, it's going to be. Yeah, that is a bit like Sean Cosby. It's really exciting to think what he could do. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember when John was just, you know, uh, my darkest prayer came out and, you know, you heard about him, but now he's, he's a juggernaut, you know, uh, I think, I think Jordan's on that same trajectory. Yeah. 
What about something for 2024 then? I mean, we're just looking ahead. So these are maybe not even books we've read yet, but I know there's a few I'm interested in seeing. Yeah, I, I picked three that, I, that um, I'm that i super excited about, have not read any of these yet. Uh, one, I, I've cheated a little bit. It's out, but it's out like as of a week ago. So I don't even right, have my okay. copy. Uh, Tim O'Brien. Um, ah, right. You know, serious literary writer. You know, you know, all these literary guys are writing crime novels. Jonathan Latham and Colson Whitehead, they've mm. discovered crime is a legitimate thing, which it always was. But, you know, welcome. Welcome, guys. But, um, uh Tim O'Brien is publishing a uh, has published a America Fantastica. It's his first novel in like twenty years, mm. raising kids and doing other things. And um, it's a detective novel. It's a chase novel. Um, it it's it it's sounds like a great like it's just a great sort of heist novel. But uh, written by Tim O'Brien, I'm sure it's going to have incredible writing. Um, you know, so I'm really excited. I've ordered my copy. It hasn't arrived yet, but uh, that's one I'm really really looking forward to. Yeah, good. Yeah. How about uh, how about on your side? Well, I was going to say that reminds me of something, which is Kevin Powers' novel that came out uh, this year. Uh, oh, crikey, I'll have to look up the title. But Kevin Powers, I mean, he's written a couple of literary novels about the experience of being a soldier. But this one is an actual out-and-out thriller, and it's really well worth checking out. But when it comes to 2024, one I think you'd be interested in, um, I don't know if you've had the chance to see this yet, but uh, Joe Thomas who's a friend of um, David Peace. Brazilian Psycho and Bent. Um, right, exactly. Plus his, I have his interview with uh, David Peace on sort of uh, autoplay. <laughs> right. so, yeah, so he has a book coming out. Yeah, this one's called uh, Red Menace, and it's set in 1985. And it's, it's the second in a trilogy of books that kind of, again, it lays out British culture and British society, you know, and the things going on in that Thatcher period and that sort of thing. So I'm really looking forward to that. I've got it here, but I haven't read it yet. Joe, Joe Thomas is, uh, he's another one of these guys that once you start, I mean, his books are, you know, Brazilian Psycho was 800 pages, yeah. but once you start, you can't, you can't. So I think Bent was pretty long as well, if I remember. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, he's one of those writers, whatever he publishes, I will read. Yeah, definitely worth it. That um, Brazilian Psycho was a great book because there's four books in that series. And that last book, Tops and tails the story of the other three books, and that's that's a brilliant concept. You know, it, it pulled it all together and made the quartet of books into something more than they would have been if they were all just linear sort of stories following on. So, brilliant piece of work. Um, what else then? So, uh, another writer I've admired for a long time. Um, it has is hanging up his keyboard, uh, retiring, ah, right. not writing anymore. Don Winslow. I mean. Uh, California Fire and uh, I, uh, Fire and Rescue. I mean, um, you know the the Long Winter of Frankie Machine, all the cartel novels. Uh, so he's publishing City in Ruin in on April second. Yeah, uh, it's his last novel. He says, "I I hope he reconsiders." He's a young guy. He's only he's only seventy, which in twenty twenty three is young. You know, he's yeah yeah more books in him. I hate you know I I get it. You know, he's really invested in the political stuff and sort of trying to stave off the right wing. Uh, attempted takeover of America that is ongoing. And yeah, I mean, he's thrown himself fully into that uh, political thing, hasn't he? Yeah. The really... thing is, I, I don't know how involved he is with the television. Cause there's a lot of talk about a lot of his stuff being brought to television, possibly, or, you know, cinema, whatever streaming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think savages was the last thing I saw Oliver mm. Stone, Oliver Stone version of one of his earlier novels. Um, yeah. I don't know. He, you forget because they're broken up into so many volumes, but the man is so prolific. And he's tied together, you know, City of Ruin uh, ties together four novels. 
um, and brings an end to this arc that began in the 1950s and then mm. ends. Today. And um, I'm really interested to see how he does that. Uh, but I'm all, it's not one of those books. Um, you know, I may not, I may not read right away once I get it because I know when I'm done, that's it. No more. Yeah, down that's a funny thing, isn't it? But you do get that way sometimes, don't you? There's almost a pleasure in having the book in front of you. And yeah. not reading it. It's almost, you know, you're savoring the idea that you're going to get to it sooner or later. Yeah. I have Izzo's final Marseille novel sitting on my, I just can't read it because when I know when that book is done, mm. but you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, I don't know. I'm hoping he'll reconsider, you know, and, and maybe get the itch to write again. But this one is one I'm really looking forward to. It comes out in April. So yeah, absolutely. There's an interesting one that's coming out next month. Um, where are we? We're in December now, yeah. So next month, The Spy Coast by Tess Gerritsen. And um, basically, it's that lots of CIA guys wind up retiring to Maine. <laughs> All right. And so she's got this story about uh, a CIA officer who winds up with a body on the lawn in the morning sort of thing, you know. So when that happens, it sparks the story. And I'm just curious to see what she makes of a spy story. I think she, well, she's a great writer. I, I, yeah. plus, um, like everything ends up in Maine, right? Like some, for some reason, cause it's this, we feel like we know it, but there's really vast parts of Maine that there are vast parts of Maine that the towns don't have names because it was, they were owned by a paper company mm. and it's this vast wilderness and so many great books sort of end up mid coast. I don't know if you ever read that. It came out last year. Yeah. Three. Right. Um, yeah. And I, 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 I'll definitely be checking that. I'm sure it's, it's, it's a Tess Garrison book. How can it be bad? Yeah, sure. So what about your third one then? So my third one is one I discovered um, maybe a month ago. I was looking at forthcoming titles and this one kind of came out of nowhere. You know, a lot of the um, a lot of the book, the articles you read about uh, forthcoming books, you can tell that they were promulgated by publishers and they're 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 good lists, but they're not. These aren't discoveries for the most part. They're books right. That, and this feels to me like I've discovered something that. Um, isn't getting a lot of pre-publication press, but but should because it sounds wild and bizarre and great. It's called um, uh, "Say Hello to My Little Friend," which is a famous line from Scarface. Yes, uh, right. an author I'm not familiar with, Janine Capo Crusette, and right. it was uh, it was billed as um, uh, basically a sort of uh, take a, a modern take on Scarface, uh, right. about a, a young a young man who. Um, Loses out on a, the career he thought he was going to have, so he decides to. He's inspired by Scarface to become like a young Tony Montana, and then apparently, and I I only have the blurb, so I don't have the details, but apparently, um, they end up stealing a orca from uh, Miami Sea World. I think right, they, they steal a whale, and so it just sounds like a great uh, sort of comic, <laughs> um, uh, almost a Romana Clef kind of book. It's, the, right. I'm really excited to read this one. It comes out in uh, in March. Okay, I'll have a look for that because I didn't know that one. So that sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it hasn't gotten a ton of press. I sort of found it by accident and uh, really excited to check that one out. It's, it's you know, it's crime novel. I think it's like I kind of kind of squint and turn my head to the right a little bit, but it's it. I'm calling it crime. So uh, you know what? So I've been wondering about that more recently because um, I think there's this noir sensibility, and that doesn't have to be a crime novel. But I think there's another thing when you think, what is a crime novel? And I'm I'm pretty sure, really, in all honesty, it's just anything where there's a transgression. Yes. Yep. You know, and then that takes you down a certain road. And so for me, anything that falls into that kind of category, I'm happy to call a crime novel. Yeah. yeah. Anything where authority is questioned or defied mm. or 
tried to impose on unwilling yeah. people me as a crime you know um yeah yeah i don't think crime isn't always just i took your money right it could be i took your opportunity i took your uh you know your your ch- a chance at something in life and sometimes it's a crime yeah. we commit on ourselves I, yeah i i cast as broad a net as i find olga tokarczyk's um drive your plow over the bones of the dead right. it's there's a there's a death involved and it's um but it's and it's a slim novel but it's a crime novel my you know it's mm. a math you know yeah crime to me covers a lot of a lot of ground yeah absolutely so my last choice is edward wilson now he's an american writer mm-hmm. um he was in military intelligence uh and he fell out with the authorities left america wound up in germany for a while and before winding up in britain but anyway, he's written this um, second war, post-Second World War spy story featuring a character called Catesby. And what I find is that he's a fascinating character. I mean, I think he's a great writer. Why he's not published in America, I really don't know. Can't understand that at all, because I think he's a top spy writer. But the thing about it for me is that whether you agree with his sort of opinions and things, you know, he brings China into certain issues that maybe other people haven't thought of China as a player in the game sort of thing. But uh, whether you agree with it or not, you can engage with it. That's the point. You know, you can argue with it. You can think about it. And he always leaves me thinking about things as well as telling brilliant spy stories. So, you know, I'm looking forward to that. And that'll be out in January. You can't ma- you can't ask for much more from a writer than than those ingredients, right? Right. But, well, I look forward to that. Yeah, you, you've got me. Uh, you've already got me spending money here, Paul. With <laughs> <laughs> you don't need much encouragement when it comes to books, Ted. I know that. No, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, but... Um, it's good to have a little incentive too, though. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, then. Well, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much, Ted. Hey, listen, have a great Christmas, Paul. I, I love, uh, I love everything you do, man. I look forward to. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to another great year of of crime time and talking with you. And you know what? One more question before we go, though. I should have asked. What are you working on now? We talked about it off air, but you, you know, we you need to tell the people. Yeah, so I, I've uh, so this I had I had been working on this uh, novel about um, some drownings at Paris Island Marine boot camp, and I I still am, but I think I realized that that's like a decade kind of novel. This is hers. And uh, about a month ago, I sat down and I was inspired by this. Um, people don't know this Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, one of the sons of Worcester, his father was a mayor. His real guy, his name was Arnie Khan. Um, was at in the early eighties, late seventies, early eighties, the country's biggest coke dealer. He right. ran an operation that spanned the entire country. Worcester, Mass. You know, go Worcester. Um, but we don't really talk about him very much. And <laughs> there's this, I just, I was, you know, you know, crime writers, right? You have weird things. So I, I like to troll cold case sites. And so I was on the Worcester Police Department, lists every unsolved crime, uh, maybe not in the history, history of the city, but major ones. Interesting. It's a really great uh, part of the site. And so they talk about these two guys from Worcester. They're both about 30. Uh, drove up to Maine in, on uh, in uh, an August morning in 1983, and one of the guys had, had a Corvette. Uh, the other guy was the right-hand man and, and fix-it man for this cocaine dealer. Right. Drove up to Maine, of course, because Maine, everything happens in Maine. Everything happens in Maine, yeah. Drove to northern Maine, right in the outskirts of Bangor, to collect a drug debt. They left, and they've never been seen since. They found a car in Bangor, Maine, with one of the guy's wallets in it. Uh, right. Gas had been destroyed. And that's it. No idea. No one knows what happened to these two guys. But there's a ton of scope for you to work there. Oh, uh, so I, yeah, I envisioned what, you know, I, I, I begin the novel with the disappearance. 
And then I envisioned what would happen. Uh, a side note is uh, this this drug dealer, he lasted another four years before the whole operation got pinched. Right. He testified against everybody and then disappeared in witness protection, never to be seen again. So my thought was, what would happen if he, he had an incentive to come out of witness protection in the early 2000s? And, and um, for some reason, which I will divulge here, um, but it connects to this disappearance in the 80s. Right. Uh, a billion dollars in missing drug money. And uh, I actually, um, it, I, I'm fascinated by crypto, not in the sense that I think it's this earth shattering paradigm or democratize, democratized currency, just the people that get into it have so far turned out to be either fraudsters or. Yeah, yeah it comes with a heck of a history. And it's. First yeah. Year. So I have this idea of like it's the early days of crypto and this big work at a bunch of issues I've been interested in, in what is essentially. Um, this guy comes out of witness protection to uh, basically find billions of dollars before somebody, mm-hmm. somebody else is going to find it. Um, and like I said to you, I, I found the voice really early and the first uh, hundred pages came out in about, you know, about, I don't know, three weeks, maybe, maybe a yeah. month. Incredible. And, um, it's fun to write. It's, um, it's coming along nicely. I think I'll be done probably in another month with the first draft and, We'll go from there. You know, um, uh, I'm excited. You know, I sent the first hundred to my agent. He seems pretty, pretty happy with it. So we'll see where we go from there. That sounds great. We look forward to that this year. Anyway, we'll see uh, you next year, rather. Have a good Christmas, Ted. You too, Paul. Hey, wait a minute. you got a book coming out. Tell everybody about your book. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it. This is going to be great. <laughs> right. Okay. I, um, I signed a contract a couple of weeks ago to write the Encyclopedia of Spy Fiction which will be published in March 25. If there's any man so, or other person to write that book, you're the one. That's going to be great. That's kind of you to say so. It's, uh, no, I, I'm thrilled, though. You know, it's one of those things that it's an ambition. You know, it was always there as an ambition. I didn't in, when I didn't know what kind of book I was going to write. You know, I always knew I wanted to write a book. And uh, I've, this has been milling around for three years in my mind, you know, before I actually gave it to somebody else and said, right, here, here's a solid proposal. You know, this is it. This is what I want to do. And uh, first person I showed it to said, that's the most ambitious proposal I've ever seen. So (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. But anyway, yeah, (laughs) most of my next year is going to be hard at it working on that book. Uh, I can't wait. That's going to be a great one. That's going to be on my March 2025 Christmas list. (laughs) Well, then I'm guaranteed one sale, aren't I? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, It's going to be great. Well, thanks again, Paul. Have a great Christmas, man. No, you too, Ted. Cheers now. I hope that was a great experience listening because I promise you we had an awful lot of fun doing it. A big thank you again to Ted for offering us his insight there and some great stuff to look out for. And of course, on the program notes, you can see all the books that we talked about. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favorite podcast provider. And of course, I'll be back with another interview very shortly. But for now, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.